You are listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Now, here is more to the story. Welcome to the Forefront Church Podcast. Last week's sermon was on Exodus 25 and finished up the book in chapter 40, basically talking about the tabernacle. We'll cover that and more today with us. Pastor Darren Enns, how you doing? Hi, I'm doing good. Good. Pastor Drew Tarwater, how you doing? Hey, fellas. Great to be with you guys. Good. And I'm Rob Lazzi. And today, we are basically Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> we're not peeking into it, though. Or if we're going to keep our oh, face. Yeah, we want right? no melted faces today, guys. Way to ruin it for someone who hasn't seen it yet. Okay. Ouch. I think it came out in like 1982, though. So you had your <laughs> if chance. You if you haven't seen it yet or you haven't been sick and watching TNT, <laughs> you've had your opportunity to watch it. So... But uh, we're talking about the tabernacle and the ark uh, today. Interesting stuff. A lot of history, a lot of uh, in, like information, if you want to call it that, today, which is I, I find interesting, especially when you look at all those stories of like you see on History Channel, Discovery Channel type ones, where like, where's the ark today, and what what's the significance of it? Is there any truth that is there? You know, power. But what's the power behind it? And then also with the tabernacle. So, Drew, could you give us a quick recap what you talked about on Sunday about the tabernacle? Absolutely. Yeah, you're, you know, you're right, Rob. It is really fun if you think of what are the two things that archaeology has been searching for from the for the Bible. And the New Testament's the Holy Grail, right? And Indiana Jones yep. also chases after the Holy Grail, of course. But in the Old Testament, it's the Ark of the Covenant. And we learn about the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus chapter 25. And if you've been with us, we've been moving our way through the book of Exodus. And really, if you, if you step back and you look at Exodus, you can really kind of see it in three different acts. You see Exodus, the book of Exodus start with God's people enslaved, and all of these really evil things happening to God's people. And then you see God raise up Moses. And Moses, God uses Moses to rescue God's people from Egypt. They bring them through the cross the Red Sea. Um, Egyptians are, are, are demolished. And then there's this, this period of time where God begins to teach the people of Israel what it looks like to, to live in this new community. Um, God leads Moses and the Israelites to Mount Sinai, where God brings Moses up on the mountain for 40 days and teaches him the law. He gives him the Ten Commandments. He teaches him about covenant, all these things. Starts to teach him about the law. And then he gives him, in chapter 25, these instructions for this tabernacle. And it's really interesting because for almost the better part of 15 chapters, at least sections of 15 chapters, God is giving Moses instructions for what the tabernacle should look like. And then we see that at the very end of the book of Exodus, that we see that the people of Israel actually build the tabernacle. And at the very end, when the, the tabernacle, the, the fence goes up and the screen goes on the door, basically, boom, God's glory fills the tabernacle and God's presence is with his people. Um, and so really the way that Exodus ends, it's so much of it's focused on God's presence God's glory and where God's glory is going to live with his people. And then you flip to the book of Exodus and you see that God's people are able to start or that 
God's people are actually able to go into the tabernacle. The priests are able to go in, and you start to see the sacrificial system in action. And it's really interesting, although it is self-admittedly, for the Bible reader, I think it's okay to say this, one of the more boring sections of Scripture to read, because it's like basically ancient blueprints. You know, this is such and such cubits, and this is such and such this, and here's where the goat hair comes in, and here's where the purple yarn comes in, and it's not as exciting as floods and crossing over rivers, uh, but there's a reason God gives us so much of it in, in, in the book of Exodus, and, and actually we read so much, you know, so much more about the tabernacle through the rest of the you know, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as well. So yeah, it just kind of sets the tone for the importance of this tabernacle as a whole. Is it wrong to call it an ancient Ikea manual? Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, I think it's uh, fitting. Is, is there, they always have like a, a, a graphic where there's like questions and then the guy like on the phone. Right. Like, I'm not sure if there was one of those for the tabernacle. Oh, man. Moses had a help desk set up in the tent outside <laughs> the tabernacle. Uh, in, in Exodus 25, 8, the, there's a word with dwelling is a key word in there, and it's used throughout parts of Exodus. It's a, where God is dwelling, uh, Darren. What does that mean in the sense, and how is it comparable in the New Testament where it says God dwells in us? Yeah, so the word there, the, the root is shakan. Now, Hebrew always has three letters to, to a, a root word. And so there's an SH sound, there's a K sound, and then there's an N sound. And the vowels change depending on if it's a noun or a verb, or if it's a future verb or a past verb, all that kind of stuff. Um, and and so the, yeah, shakan there is a word. And if, if you are, um, if you're a certain type of Christian who's heard about this thing called Shekinah glory, it's really interesting that the same, this word for Shekinah is actually a Hebrew word, and it comes from this word we have for uh, to dwell. And when God comes down into this tabernacle, the word is Shekan. So in 25.8, he, he says that, um, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. I will Shekan among them. And then in verse 40.35, which is at the very end of the book, this is when God's presence actually shows up. The word is Shekan. It, it's used there, the same word there. And interestingly enough, we also talked about John 1, 14 this past Sunday. And in that, in that verse, uh, it talks about how the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And that word is skenao, which has some relation to the Hebrew word shekan or shekinah. You can hear there's very similar vowels in there. There's a, a sibilant sound, an S instead of an SH, but you still have the K and the N. And so they are words that very closely relate from Hebrew into Greek. And, and it's very intentional that John uses that word right there. Interesting to think words like the starting of the connection of like the, the temple to what in the New Testament. Um, what? Yeah, there's, there's actually another word right before that, uh, mikdash. Is oh. another one, and and so that actually has four, four uh, letters in it: M, Q, D, and then the same S H that we have in Shekinah, and um, the there are th- remember there are three for for Hebrew word. So if you erase the first one, if you erase the M, you get the word kadosh, which is the same word used for holy. And oh. if the thing about Hebrew is that if, if you put a mem on the front, if you put an M on the front of anything, you essentially turn it into a noun or a place, an object that, huh. that is in located in time and space. And so when you have mikdash, 
then you have a, a temple. And so that's something, another Hebrew feature there, when how you make, you can make a verb into a noun by just putting it in M on the front. Two, two quick things I've learned going over this with you guys with the words is that first off, you got to read it right to left. Hebrew is right they, to left. Yeah. Hebrew is right to left. And that Hebrew's got a one letter for the SH sound. Correct. In an English <laughs> language. So I did learn something. To, and it kind of looks like a, a W. Yeah. It looks, yeah, it looks like a weird W. So, but uh, it's interesting when you look at the words and the word study on that. It is. You know, this is the first time that I know of in the that I've seen in the Old Testament that the word sanctuary is used. And which is interesting because you know, we we think about church buildings, right? You think about walking into a building and and you know, nowadays you go into a church and you're looking for the auditorium or you're looking for the, you know, the worship, the worship center. center. But back in the day, it was the sanctuary, right? I still and call so, it a sanctuary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a word that if you grew up in church, you grew up hearing the word sanctuary. And so we think a sanctuary is the place where people go and worship. Well, this is, you know, we see all the way back now to Exodus chapter 25 when God's telling about the temple. He's going to go, I want somebody to build me a sanctuary. Build me the place where I will be with my people and there, my people will come and worship me. So we, we, we definitely see that um, while the church is not a building, that God has intentions for his sanctuaries. No, interesting. And then, like, the question I had for you guys on this a lot is, like, uh, throughout this the study in Exodus and even going through this is, like, God setting his people apart. So what, with this temple, with the temple, the ark, all the imagery that's here that's given to us here at the end of Exodus going into Leviticus and Numbers, what sets the Israelites apart from the people surrounding them? What's, like... What do the communities, if someone walked in from another community going, oh, wow, this is different, what's so different about them in this? Well, it's funny you should ask about the setting apart because that, that word sanctify is related to sanctuary and is from the Hebrew word kadosh, from which we get the word sanctuary, mikdash. So <laughs> I, I, I knew it. that. I, as knew far that. as you know, Darren, I knew that. <laughs> yeah, as, far nice. as, <laughs> as far as you knew. So, but like, yeah, so... So what's the, so then what's like what what makes the Israelites look different? Like what's the purpose of all these, um, the symbols? I'll throw that at either one who wants to answer. Yeah, I think there is <laughs> so much to this. You know, God sets us, sets apart His people, and He wants to put them and make them basically a light to the nations. So He puts. The Israelites, you know, his plan is to put them right in the middle between Babylon and Assyria and Egypt and the Philistines and all the other bad guys out there. And he's going to give them this law and this new way of living that is going to set them apart. So they're going to be very different in the way that they live, but they're also going to be very different in the way that they worship. And so what you'll see throughout pagan cultures, and, and one of the things we'll get to when we talk through the book of Joshua is that the pagan cultures around them, the way they worshipped God was very, very um, evil. There were, they were sacrificing their kids. Uh, they were having their sons walk through fire. Um, there was just these pagan elements that, were, um, that showed that their life was not, human life was not valued. Um, what we see when you get to the tabernacle, the way the tabernacle is built for the for the Israelites, is that there still is there is the sacrifice of animals still, which points towards cleaning of the of sin guilt to enter into the presence of God. Um, but the 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 way they are instructed to worship God, it, it shows a reverence and a holiness for God, a God who wants to 
live among his people, who believes in the sanctity of life. And so the way that they worship God in the temple, the way that the tabernacle is in, is constructed, and the way that God dwells in the temple um, himself is going to be so different from all of the other cultures that those cultures would take notice and say there's something very different about these Israelite people just in the way they even approach their God. Because um, if you think about think about the way the temple worked in pagan cultures, what men, men would do, men, men and women, they would build these temples, and then they would create a little figurine. We've talked about those before, right? Idols, icons. They would create a little figurine of their God, and they would put him in the temple, and he would live in the temple. Whereas what we see here in Exodus 40, the moment the tabernacle is built, God himself, the cloud of his presence and his glory then fills the temple. So man did not put God in the temple like they do in the pagan cultures. No, God himself fills the temple. And that right there is a huge difference. They could actually look upon the temple or the tabernacle and see God's glory in a cloud. He wasn't some little wood or metal figure that was formed by some some dude in the camp who had a blacksmith outfit and forge in his tent. And then what was it with like uh, where God was like the dwelling was it between the two seraphim of the ark? There was something about that. Yeah, the remember God that had declared he, that no image shall be made of him. And yeah. so when we come to the to the the Ark of the Covenant, which I think is actually is it? I don't think it ever says Ark of the Covenant in the Bible. It just says Ark or Ark of God. Just an interesting note that I noticed one time. Um, I mean, the the tablets of the covenant are inside of it, and that's why we say Ark of the Covenant. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it says yeah, make an Ark of acacia wood. And right. it gives all of the different things to overlay it and, and uh, all the gold, yeah. um, but never says Ark of the Covenant. We, made, right. we, we added that piece. Yeah, we did. But uh, in, in uh, Exodus twenty five seventeen is when they make a cover for it. And that's when they put the, the cherubim on the, on the top of it with their wings swept forward. And then it talks about a mercy seat uh, and that kind of stuff. But there actually is no, no seat there. There's no throne. There's nothing that that says God is here except for the, the cherubim where, where God is, is dwelling. And in verse 22, it says there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law. That's wh- where that comes from. I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. And so God dwells here between the cherubim. And there's just some amazing imagery there. First of all, that God is not into it, made into an image. He just shows up in whatever kind of blazing presence he wants. Um, and in Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah gets a throne, ro- uh, a vision of the throne room of God. And what he sees are two seraphim, which are very similar to cherubim, with, with wings. And one is on God's left and one is on God's right. And it's essentially a vision of what is truly happening above the, the lid on the ark. It's, it's the throne room of God in heaven and this is an earthly representation of it. So when when you can't make an image of God, there has to be a presence where God is, and that's what Isaiah sees. Another mm-hmm. interesting story is in First Samuel, First uh, Samuel, uh, five and six, where the ark of God is stolen by the Philistines because some people were really stupid with it. They thought that if they would just take that talisman up to the front of their army, they would win. Well, God was not with them and they got destroyed and the ark was captured by, by the Philistines. An awful mm. thing to happen. So what they do is they take their, they, they take the, the talisman of God, of Yahweh, and take it into their temple who uh, was built to worship Dagon 
And because, well, obviously our God is better than, than their God. So now Yahweh becomes subservient to Dagon. But what happens is two nights in a row, Dagon, the statue of Dagon falls down, like falls flat on his face, uh, which the words used there are, are words of worship. You know, in the Old Testament, when someone bowed down or fell on their face, they were doing that to, to worship someone. So Dagon was worshiping the ark <laughs> and where Yahweh was. Uh, well, the people came back up and freaked out. Oh, no, no, what, what happened? There must have been an earthquake. So they put him back up. Well, the next night, Dagon fell over again, except that his hands and his head fell off. Uh, and so God had just decapitated uh, Dagon without <laughs> any use. Uh, like, who knows how he did it? Maybe he did show up and show up in the mercy seat somehow. But uh, yeah, there, there's some spiritual warfare going on right there in, in that temple. Yeah, and no, then everybody in that town gets tumors, and they end up saying, "Get rid of this thing and give it back to the Israelites because it's going to kill us." <laughs> they learned a lot quicker than Pharaoh did. That's they did. Yeah, yeah. quite, a, quite you, interesting. You know, Rob. Speaking of Pharaoh, I just what I love about this is not only is um, is this to be a light to the nations, but I think this taught something pretty impactful to the Hebrew people. You know, they grew up in Egypt, and in Egypt, they grew up with temples. Pharaoh sat in a temple, basically, right? They grew up with temples for all these little gods. And then God says to them, the, the, you know, the second commandment is don't create any idols. And I'm sure they're going, well, that is how we've, that's how we've seen it done. You, you create a picture of your God and you put him in his little temple and that's where you go and worship. And God says, no, create for me a holy place, but don't make any idols. And it all makes sense to him in Exodus 40 when his presence fills the tabernacle. And all of a sudden now, you don't have a little figurine of God. You have God's glory, and you have God's presence seen in a cloud. And I just imagine if you're a Hebrew man or woman, you're sitting there in the crowd that day, you're going, now it makes sense. Now it shows us how God is so different. And so I just love that visual. Just imagine I'm in the crowd that day and, and how that had to have just stirred them up. No, absolutely. And the... You made a comment earlier about with uh, the materials used and how it sort of symbolizes like the Garden of Eden a little bit. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, this is really fun. This is really fun. You know, it, what's interesting is the closer you get to the tabernacle, the, the, the nicer the materials are and, you know, the richer the, the precious gems are. So when you step into the tabernacle, you see a bronze, you know, bronze altar. But when you get to the back of the tent, the Holy of Holies, where God's, um, where the Ark of the Covenant would be in the mercy seat, it's made of gold. And so as you move in, you get closer, the materials get nicer. As you move in and get closer, the, the yarn gets nicer, the thread gets nicer, um, the materials get nice. You get start to see stones. And, and what I love about this, if you go to Exodus 25 and you look, you'll see where Moses is told by God to start taking up a collection of all these different things from the people. And he says um, that one of the things you need to do is get gold, silver, and bronze. And then you need to go and you need to get onyx stones um, and stones for setting of the ephod and for the breastplate, which the priests would wear. And gold and, and onyx, hold on to those two. Those are two of the precious gems and uh, materials we see in the Garden of Eden. And so you start to see here that something's going on. And the, there's a connection now. Then you start to see more of the plans made that there is to be this lampstand that is right outside the place where God's presence would dwell. And this lampstand will um, basically is going to symbolize a tree, well, the tree of life, which is in the center of the garden. 
And the lampstand will always burn. It will always have oil that burns all day and all night, just like the light of the, of the Lord, which always shines. And then you also see another connection where the, um, the veil, the, basically the, um, the veil that takes you back to the Holy of Holies, the back of the, of the tent in the tabernacle, will have two cherubim angels embroidered on it. Well, if you remember right in Exodus or in Genesis 3:24, when mankind is banished from the garden, two cherubim angels are put on the east um, entrance of the garden to protect it. And so you have all this imagery that's pointing back to the Garden of Eden uh, with the tabernacle, which symbolically shows us that the, the Garden of Eden was where man would live, where, where God was going to live in the presence of men, uh, of his of mankind. And so you see with the tabernacle, God is, to use a, a borrowed term, to, he's re-Edenizing his people. He is re, he's coming back, moving back into their neighborhood and bringing Eden back to them. So if you're just reading it straight through, you'll miss it. But as you begin to, to look at the materials, you begin to look at how God's placing things, you begin to see, wait, the garden, there's the time between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden, which God is bringing his presence now back to live among his people once again. And not only that, of the, all the imagery inside the tent itself, but on a global scale, I have found a lot of relations between creation and the tabernacle. Like wherever God wants to dwell, there is a, a specific ordering of how things go. Hmm. At, at creation, we have three different divided sections. We have sky, land, and sea. And, and things that are within their own spaces are considered holy. We've kind of talked about that with like unclean things tend to like birds who dwell on the ground or or mollusks who attach to the ground but also are in the sea are unclean, that kind of thing. They shouldn't eat those. Um, when when the ark is made for Noah, there are three sections. There's a lower, a middle, and an upper decks, and there's a door in it, and there's a roof on it. And there's the only time we get specific instructions about how things are to be made, it's for a dwelling place of God. So that's creation. There's the ark. There's the tabernacle. There's the temple. And then we have the new temple in Revelation and some in, in Ezekiel as well. There are specific exact measurements for all these things, and they're all where God is going to be be dwelling. And the tabernacle itself has a courtyard, outer courtyard, courtyard, and then it has uh, an inner, like, holy place, and then the Holy of Holies. There are three divisions uh, in all these things. Wherever God dwells, there's exact specific ordering that's supposed to be taking place. So when God starts giving instructions on measurement size, he wants us to pay attention. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> he's going to come and be in our midst. I, I love that. It's such a cool, such a cool reality. No, it's interesting to think about. And then also with not just the organization of the uh, the temple or the tabernacle, there's also specific organization of outside the tabernacle and how they were the tribes were aligned or at least surrounded. It wasn't that isn't there something right. behind that? Yeah, in in numbers, and this is something that that I uh, am getting into a little bit with my sermon coming up this next Sunday. Um, in numbers, it's super boring because it's a genealogy. Uh, it's more instructions. But again, there is a specific ordering because the book of Numbers is all about how they're going to travel. When you travel, when you camp, here's the order in which you should go. And what we see is that the tabernacle is at the center of the camp and to and then circling it are the priests and the Levites. And then there are four different columns of three each, which gets to the 12 tribes. And there's there's columns to the north, south, east, and west. And there are th- there's three, yeah, three by three, three in each one. And at the head of them, especially when they travel, is Judah, because Judah is uh, supposedly the best one for all those reasons that we uh, we had, had seen in, in Genesis. 
um, some prophesying and some stuff. Of course, we know that Jesus came from Judah and David and the kings came from Judah. So we knew that. Um, but back then, I wonder if there was any, like, in, in, any drama between the, the tribes. Like, why is Judah so important? Like, why not Benjamin? Man, come on. Right. And Judah was also the biggest, too. You know, in Numbers 2, you do see that by, by size of people, you know, they had almost 75,000 people. So there's something to that as well, about them being so prominent. No, that's interesting. And then, so with all this, there's a lot of uh, underlying points that, as we know, the story of Jesus points back. What are some of the key things that point to Jesus and how the tabernacle is designed, built, and the symbology? Symbology? I'm creating words with you there, Drew. Darren doesn't make <laughs> what up we do. words. That's what we do. You, yeah. you and I will make up the words and we'll ask Darren to translate them. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it's this tabernacle is so amazing because you think about every single piece of this tabernacle is going to point towards Jesus. And so God is re-Edenizing his people, right? God lived with his people in the garden. Sin broke that. God then sets forward this action plan to rescue his people. He chooses the nation of Israel. He's going to, he's going to do that family. He's going to bless them. And he sets them apart, rescues them from Egypt. And now he's coming to live amongst his people again. And all of this language points towards what Jesus will one day come and, and fulfill. And, and I, I shared it on Sunday, but I just can't say it enough. In John 1, 14, you, you see the, that Jesus came and he dwelt among his people. And the word for dwelt means he tabernacled among his people. John is clearly communicating that, that Jesus has come to be the presence of God among us. And he came to, to, to show us God. And so it's interesting in Revelation 21, when John talks about someday when God is going to, Jesus returns and God is going to make all things right again, God is going to come and dwell among his people. And he uses this same word, skaneo, and he uh, is going to come and it's the presence of God living with his people. And so when you look at the tabernacle, you see how serious God takes sin, that priests have to come in and they have to sacrifice a, an animal at the, at the bronze altar. Then they have to wash their hands and their feet at the bronze basin before they can even enter in to the tent. And then when they get in the tent, there's incense burning. And then there's the, the lampstand, which is the tree of life. And then they move through the cherubim, uh, embroidered curtains into the Ark of the Covenant, where at the Ark of the Covenant now, they're going to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And that blood is going to be offered up for the forgiveness of, of sin for the people. So a lamb is killed at the bronze altar, and then the priest is purified to take the blood into the mercy seat. And all points towards Jesus, who will come as the Lamb of God, who once and for all would give his life for the sins of man. And his blood is spilled. When Jesus' blood was spilled on the cross, provided forgiveness once and for all for God's people. And, and one, you know, it points forward to that future day when Jesus returns again, and then forever God will be living and dwelling with his people. So it's all this beautiful imagery that points us towards Jesus and what Jesus would do. Yet in the meantime, we, we wonder, where do we look and see God's presence now? One of my favorite pieces of imagery in the New Testament about the temple and tabernacle is when Jesus dies, and Drew mentioned this really quickly, so I want to dive into it more. When Jesus dies, it, the Gospels record, uh, for example, in Matthew 27, 51, that at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in half from top to bottom. 
And Drew talked about how there, there were two cherubim embroidered on the curtains that signified the way into the Holy of Holies where God would be dwelling. And that curtain was torn in half. So the, the dividing that the cherubim had been protecting was now gone. And that symbolizes that God's presence is no longer going to dwell in a place, in a temple, but it went out into the rest of the world. And more specifically, uh, to, to the believers. When, when Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, this is what we see. The, there was a rush of wind. There was fire. There was, uh, people could see tongues of fire resting above people's uh, heads. And that is direct imagery to when God's glory came and filled the, the temple. There was, there was wind rushing. There was fire. You could see this thing. And, and that, that is what happens when Jesus died. And then 50 days later, the presence of God comes and fills a place on earth again, which is his church. Yeah, it's interesting to see all this stuff come full circle. It definitely is. Yeah, it definitely is. You see God's presence in the in the garden. You see God's presence in the tabernacle. You see God's presence in the in the temple, and then you see God's presence revealed to us fully, finally in Jesus. And then, yeah, when Jesus, you know, Jesus ascends to heaven, that God's presence now comes and dwells in His people, which means that every single believer has the Holy Spirit living in Him and her, but also. Even even more impactfully, we as the church now, as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 9, are where the Spirit of God dwells until that future day when God's Spirit dwells again with us um, in the new heaven and the new earth. So don't, don't you see that running theme? It's so cool that God, His mission is to always be with His people. And we, of course, sin has broken that and messed that up. But you continue to see God just reinserting himself in our story, which thankfully he does because we have a habit of turning to the wrong way. No, absolutely. It is interesting to think all that. And then we'll sort of keep, keep this going back full circle as the Raiders of the Lost Ark here. I won't ask Darren because he doesn't like to hypothesize. <laughs> but, like you see all the stories then on History Channel, like is the Ark still somewhere to be found? Are we just missing it? Is it somewhere in Africa? Is it somewhere in the Middle East? There actually is some Arkansas. Uh, Ark <laughs> Arkansas. I hadn't thought about that one. Uh, I did a quick Google Google search about some of the stuff, and one of the questions was, "Where is the Ark?" Well, some church, yeah, some church in Africa claims to have, to have it. Yeah, it's, it's guarded. I don't I don't know if that is, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's I'm most, not going to speculate. That's the most, that's the most <laughs> hypothesizing we've gotten Darren on. That's the most. <laughs> it it well, doesn't matter because God's not going to be there. Like he's, he's somewhere else now. Right. So it's just going to be worth its weight in gold. Well, we, we do know. Yeah, right. We do know that it was stolen, right, when the, when the temple was destroyed. So I guess if it's not in existence anymore, somebody just melt, you know, melted it down for its gold, and who knows where the manna is. Maybe they ate it and somebody got food poisoning, you know, and the Ten Commandments. Maybe, you know, those are tucked away in some guy's dresser drawer somewhere. Uh, but it would be incredible to find it. I'd love to yeah, get, a good, get a good look at, uh, at, Aaron's, at Aaron's staff. That'd be pretty cool. Could you imagine someone, like, who didn't know what it was, just kind of opening it up be like, Someone left their stuff. What am <laughs> I supposed to do with it? This smells fresh. Like a yeah, book right. in here and like some Tupperware with some bread in it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, well, on that note, we'll wrap it up here. Any parting thoughts here, guys, before we wrap it up? We finished the book of Exodus. Whoop, whoop. And, uh, and now on Sunday, we're going to uh, take one sermon and finish the rest of the Pentateuch. So, uh, you know, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, three books wrapped into one. Wait. Drew, are you saying I'm supposed to cover that in my next I sermon? So. Leviticus, yeah. Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Mm -hmm. yep. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got yeah, good luck. Good luck. 
<laughs> and then we're going to jump into a new series called Old Kingdom, where we're going to walk our way through um, the what happens once Israel gets to the promised land, sets their feet down firmly, and how is God going to then bring, uh, continue to bring the promise um, to his people that he's going to bless the world, as we saw back in the book of Genesis. So we'll get to see King David, King Solomon. We'll get to see all of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, that'll, be, uh, that'll carry us through the rest of the summer. So I'm really excited about our new series, Old Kingdom, coming up here in two weeks. If you have questions or you'd like to have answered, send them here to us at life at ForefrontChurch.tv. Or if you're at Forefront on Sundays, you can just drop the questions in the boxes in the back of the sanctuary or worship center or whatever we call it these days. But we thank you so much for listening. Darren, Drew, thank you so much. And we'll see you guys next time. You have been listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of More to the Story.